We've been on this journey in recent years of starting our Restore Healing Service that takes place on the first Sunday of each month at 6 o'clock in the evening. So when Jody told me that story, I just thought, you know, our God is a God who heals. And uh, it's, it's so reinforcing and encouraging to hear stories like that where childlike faith is honored. And, and God does what he does best, which is restore and renew. Well, I'm probably the last person you want to hear right now. You probably just want to hear Janet talk all day. It's just such an amazing... Jeff's nodding his head. Yes, thanks for that approval, Jeff. And as Brittany said, confession and repentance is not like the topic. You're like, yeah, please talk more about confession and sin. But I found some transforming things this week that really rocks my world, and I'm, I'm eager to share those with you. So before we come to God's Word, let's just... Uh, Say a word in prayer. Father God, I pray as always that you would guide my words, that you would speak through me, that you would challenge each one of us, including me, with the truth of your scripture, and that you would open our eyes to thinking uh, in new ways and new perspectives about what you have for us. So we give you this time, we give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think it's any surprise that we live in a world that is abandoned absolute truth. We live in a world of relativism where, you know, your truth is good for you, I'll find my truth. There doesn't seem to be any truth that applies to everyone. It's individual truth, and better yet, it's individual personal preferences. And all of this touches upon the topic of sin, because we have to ask, what constitutes sin? Can we agree upon what constitutes sin? Uh, is God and his word the, the, the standard of right and wrong, the standard of absolute truth? Or do we make up our own truth, our own morality, our own reality, really? As many of you know, sin literally means to miss the mark. That's the simplest definition of sin, to miss the mark. And yet, what does it mean to miss the mark if we can't agree upon what the mark is? Is the mark God in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His perfection? Is it a divine standard or is it a human one? And as we're talking about confession and repentance, it's, it's, it necessitates that we talk about sin. This week I was reading Eric Metaxas. Uh, Norma uh, sent me an a article by Eric Metaxas in this week's issue of Breakpoint. And he argued that we're now living in a post-truth world where feelings matter more than facts, where truth is simply in the eye of the beholder. And he says that Abdu Murray, the North American director of the Ravi, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, recently wrote a book called Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. And he explains that post-truth has two different modes. The first is what he calls a soft mode, in which people acknowledge that truth exists, but they don't care about truth if it gets in the way of their personal preferences. And this is because, for many of us, feelings matter more than our ultimate commitment to truth. The second mode is what he calls a hard mode, in which people are actually willing to propagate blatant falsehoods, blatant lies, 
knowing that they're lies, knowing that they're false, because they believe that doing so serves or achieves a higher political or social purpose or agenda. And he said all of this is having an effect on us and the world that we live in. So much so that even Christians and churches, in a desire to adhere to the ultimate post-truth virtue, which has become tolerance, you know, we just need to tolerate everything. And so in our, our desire to adhere to this, many Christians and even churches have abandoned the truth and the claims of the gospel in doing that. And also many of us, when choosing between our own desires and the demands of Scripture, convince ourselves that desires matter more, so much so that Jesus, after all, must actually approve of them. Because God just wants me happy. He wants me to be fulfilled, and these things make me happy, or I think will make me happy. So he must be for that, because God is just the great wish fulfiller, you know? And that's how our thinking goes. So as you can see, as we talk about sin and confession and repentance, we have our work cut out for us this morning. And I want to begin by turning to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 5 to 10. 1 John 1, 5 to 10. If you're in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible, it's toward the end, right before Revelation. There's 1, 2, and 3 John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is what John writes. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Because we've been going through this series recently on identity, we're in week five of this identity series. For the first time, I noticed false identities in this passage that I hadn't considered before. Notice with me, if you would, that the first false identity that I see is inconsistency. Inconsistency. When he says in verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, if we claim to know God, If we claim to have a relationship with him, but our practice doesn't match our profession, if there's a disconnect or a gap, chances are it means that we're living in a false identity. It means that we're we're believing a lie. We're allowing ourselves to be deceived. And I don't mean just any inconsistency. I'm talking about blatant. All of us, none of us are perfect. All of us make mistakes. All of us... Uh, don't have perfect practice, but if there are blatant, glaring things in our life that we tolerate, and we say one thing and do another, chances are we're, we're living a false identity. Secondly, I see unrepentance. He says in verse 8 and in verse 10, if we say that we have no sin, in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, there's this denial, the denial of wrongdoing, the denial that our actions 
uh, equate to being sin. Everything's relative. Everything's subjective. So we just redefine sin. We just make excuses. We rationalize. And sin is no longer sin. And John says that all of this keeps God's truth from living in us, from residing in us, from making its home in us and guiding us. And the last is relativism. Relativism, verse 8 and 10 again, deceiving ourselves and the truth is not actually in us and making God out to be a liar and his word isn't in us. And I think all of this begins with questioning the authority of God's word. You know, this is an ancient book coming from ancient manuscripts, you know, two to three thousand years ago. Is it really relevant for today? Is it really something that can be trusted? You know, I've heard it's riddled with errors. You know, there's inconsistencies, and we go on and on and on, and we start doubting the truth of God's Word as our guide and as our standard. And really, we see in verse 8 and verse 10 that God's Word, the Logos, which is Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see that Word and truth are used interchangeably. And so John is making an argument that God's Word is truth. It is reliable. It comes from Him. It's divine. And it is our standard of morality and of what's right and wrong. And as we read Scripture, we find that truth-telling leads to freedom. As Brittany shared earlier, John writes in his Gospel in chapter 8, verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But that's the kind of power that truth-telling has. It not only leads to freedom, but it leads to us being released to live in our, our true identity. Because we don't have to wear a mask anymore. We don't have to play a game, you know, and pretend that we're one thing when we're really another. We can get it out there and confess who we really are and who we're depending upon as our Savior to, to rescue us. And I want to argue this morning that the answer to sin begins with confession, begins with confession. And I want to start with a definition. And in that definition, I want to start by saying what confession is not. And I would say that confession is not merely saying that we're sorry. It's not merely saying that we're sorry or being remorseful. Those are good things. That's a good start. There's nothing wrong with that. We should feel sorry and remorseful about our sinful actions. But there's so much more to confession than that. In Scripture, confession is simply telling the truth. The Greek for confession means to say the same thing. It means I say the same thing about my actions that God says about them. And so, in essence, I'm agreeing with God about what his word says about my behavior. Rather than challenging that or rationalizing that, making excuses, lowering the standard, I'm agreeing with God. And scripture tells us very plainly and bluntly in Romans, all have sinned. Not some, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is a standard. God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's perfection. It's not a horizontal standard where I look around me and compare myself to others. It's a vertical standard, a vertical comparison. God's holiness and righteousness. 
And Paul goes on to write three chapters later in Romans, in Romans 6, and the wages of sin, the reward of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like the way that the message translation of this verse puts it. It says, work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension, your reward is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. So confession, if you will, is, is us talking to God. It's us admitting the truth, telling the truth to God. Not that He isn't already aware of it, but it's us agreeing with Him rather than spinning it all the ways that we spin it. It's us agreeing with him about our sin, agreeing that what his word says about our behavior is true, and that we need a savior. We can't save ourselves. And it's agreeing that, as scripture says, Jesus is the only solution to our sin. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one goes to God the Father except through him. And finally, it means that we're agreeing that at Calvary, at the cross where Jesus died, the, the payment of our sin was paid in full. It was taken care of. One of Jesus' last statements on the cross is, it is finished, which was really an accounting or a legal term for paid in full. And that's what someone would say when a debt had been paid and someone was released of that obligation. Paid in full. It's taken care of. It's cut off. It's done. You're free. You can go on. And that's what confession does. I like what Max Lucado, pastor and author, writes about confession. He says, Confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks and pulling the stumps. He knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. I love that. There is a rock of greed over here, Father. I can't budge it. Will you help me? And that tree of guilt near the fence, its roots run long and deep. And may I show you some dry soil, too crusty for seed. He concludes by saying, God's seed always grows better in the soil of the heart, which is cleared. And that's what confession does. It tills and, and works over the soil of our heart that we might be receptive, that we might be fruitful, that we might be productive for what God has for us. Sometimes I think that we believe repentance uh, precedes confession. You know, I feel sorry about my sin and then I confess it. But I want to argue today that, that effective, effective um, Repentance really, although it involves confession, I mean, it presupposes it and assumes it. Effective repentance always follows confession. Effective repentance always comes after we agree upon the truth with God. As we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that as Jesus began his public ministry, the first thing out of his mouth was repent and believe the Gospel. That's kind of a, a hard sell, you know, not really like he's enticing people with promises or gimmicks or free things right from the get-go. 
repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And that was his most consistent and repeated message until he took up the cross. The thing he talked the most about, repent, change the way that you think, believe the good news of what God has done. In all times, in every situation, his advice was to repent. Not just the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite, not just the powerful. He told even the poor and oppressed that repentance is and was the key to eternal life. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, it's the second book in the New Testament, right after the book of Matthew. Chapter 1, I want to look at verses 9 to 15. Mark 1, 9 to 15. Gives us a good example of this. Mark chapter 1 verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, because we've been going through this identity series for the last five weeks, for the first time, I saw elements of identity in this passage that I had never seen before. Consider, if you will, that in this passage, Jesus' identity is first affirmed at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And many of the other Gospels go on to say, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. So Jesus' identity is affirmed. Then it's tested. It's tested as he's called out into the wilderness. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan is testing that identity. And continually, we have three records of it, but continually he's saying, if you are God, do this, do that. If you're God, prove it. And finally, his identity is lived out in his ministry and his interaction with people. As, he, as I said, he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and he lived that out before people. So we see Jesus' identity affirmed and tested and lived out. What a pattern for us. And again, what was the continual message? It was repent. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. The good news that you and I can achieve righteousness apart from the law because Jesus has become God's righteousness for us. Well, I want to start with a definition of repentance. And the usual definition that we hear is a change of mind, a new way of thinking. The the definition that I grew up with, which I've really um, adopted for my whole life, what I was always taught is a change of mind and heart that results in a change in behavior. A change of mind and heart that results in a change of behavior. And if you look at Scripture, that's a solid definition. But in this identity video teaching series that we're going through midweek in small groups, 
I was presented with a definition of repentance that in my 47 years of being a Christian, I had never heard before. And to say that it was transforming and eye-opening is an understatement. And some of you will hear this and you go, that's blasphemy. How can that be? But hang with me and listen. Jamie and Donna Winship, in, in this teaching series on identity, are, are simplifying and saying, you know, confession is really us talking to God. And repentance is simply God talking back to us. And that's why listening prayer is so important. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Change of heart and mind results in a change of behavior. But it's listening to God give us that new way of thinking about our sin. A few weeks ago, we talked about all the different ways that God speaks to us today, whether it's through his word primarily, or dreams and visions, or through the Christian community, or there's a number of different ways that God speaks and, and again, as we talk about God speaking, we're validating and affirming that God never speaks in a way that's contrary to his word. If you think you hear God speaking and it, it disagrees with what we have in scripture, then it wasn't God speaking. Because this is the filter of truth. But God affirms in different ways and manners uh, of what he wants us to know. And so repentance is, God, what do you want me to know about my sin? Help me to think about my sin and my actions in a new way that I haven't thought of before so I don't repeat the same broken, worn-out patterns over and over again. I don't know about you, but in the past, confession and repentance amounted to me feeling bad, feeling remorseful, regretting what I had done, and then summoning up my willpower and my determination and vowing to God that I'm, I'm going to do my best not to do that again. But oftentimes, I'm not working on any new knowledge. I'm not working on any new insights or perspectives. And so it's like, a, it's like a, a scratch in the record where the needle just keeps going to that groove and just instead of playing the beautiful music that it was supposed to play. And I'm stuck in that rut. And so... Repentance is really God giving us a new way of seeing our sin, a new understanding and perspective, a new path going forward. And so I want to take a moment and remind you of some very well-known passages of Scripture that talk about this. The first is in Romans 12:2, where the Apostle Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I like how the New Living Translation uh, phrases that same verse. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing, and perfect. Romans 8, 6 tells us, stop letting sinful, the sinful nature control your mind because that leads to death. But let the Spirit control you in your mind because this leads to life and peace. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that as Christians, as those who have received Christ as Savior and Lord, we actually have the mind of Christ the question is, do we draw upon that? 
Do we, do we live that way? Do we utilize that? Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17, Paul says, With the Lord's authority I say this, Don't live any longer as those who don't know God, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness, like what John said, professing to have fellowship with God and his children and yet living in darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they have closed their mind and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off the sinful nature. In your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. And not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed. Then we also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore he says consider the members of your earthly body. As dead to immorality. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire and greed. Which all amounts to idolatry. Then one of my favorite verses comes from the prophet Isaiah. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 26, verse 3 and 4, God promises that he will keep in perfect peace the one whose thoughts, or literally mind, is fixed on him. And therefore the prophet encourages the people, trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. I want to take a few moments and just break this in in practical application as we close today. And I guess the question that comes up is, where do we start, you know? Where do we start this process? And I, I would suggest to you exactly where the psalmist started in Psalm 26, verse 2. I love what he says. He says, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Not, not examine me to find how good I am, but do your work. That word try is, is literally the word refine in the Hebrew, and it speaks of the refiner's fire and the process of refining precious metal and removing the dross until the refiner can see his image in that molten, hot, liquid metal. And that's what God does with us as he refines and removes the impurities until his reflection is, is born in our life. And so that's what we're asking God to do. We're inviting him to do his work. I was telling first service, I, 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 I want to close with something today that I don't fully understand yet, and I'm just beginning to scratch the surface. It's way beyond my intellect. But I've been reading recently about a guy named Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, he's the father, the father of modern linguistics. And uh, the funny thing is he's actually American. So we actually have somebody that's given us something that, you know, isn't from Europe. We, uh, super brain power here. And it's interesting what he said about language. He theorized that the principles underlining the structure of language are biologically determined in the human mind 
and therefore are genetically transmitted. He argues that humans share the same underlying linguistic structure, irrespective of socio-cultural differences. And this is completely different than what Skinner posited, that everyone is a blank slate, and that um, what we learn is, is merely uh, culturally conditioned, that it's, it's all learned behavior. Chomsky's saying, no, there's a biological component to this where it's in each one of us and we're all at the same point. And he argues that the highest form of thinking is intuitive rather than rational. And we live in a, in a rational age. We live in the world of the scientific method where everything has to be observable and repeatable. And, you know, what's this about intuition? But a definition of intuition is the ability to acquire knowledge without proof or evidence or conscious reasoning without understanding how the knowledge was acquired. And I would say that sounds very much like supernatural truth. God, speak to me. I don't have to understand how it makes sense or how you got it, but speak your truth to me. It doesn't have to make sense in terms of this world because Scripture tells me that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18 literally says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The Greek is literally the logos of the cross. The Christ of the cross doesn't make sense to the world. His wisdom, his way of thinking. But we're asking God to give us that way of thinking, that new way of thinking. And it it occurred to me this week that out of all the the names and the images that Jesus could have uh, been given by God, he is the word. And the word is the most foundational part of, of language and communication and knowledge. Jesus is that word in us that helps all language, all communication, all knowledge. Kind of a mind-blowing thing. Well, this, this guy Chomsky, even though I don't believe he was a believer, he goes on to argue that formulative thinking, meaning rational thinking, just going on the basis of the facts, assuming that I have all the facts, which is a big assumption, It's kind of like working on a puzzle and you find out later that, you know, 20 to 40 pieces were missing and you agonized forever trying to work and you didn't have all the pieces. And we assume that rationalism is the best, but sometimes there's missing pieces. So he argues that formulative thinking produces compulsive repetition. And I thought, hello, sounds like sin to me repeating the same patterns over and over again that don't work because I'm thinking, I'm not changing my thinking, I'm not changing my understanding, I'm not hearing from God as to a new perspective, I'm just repeating things in my ignorance. Whereas generative thinking, also known as transformative thinking, or intuitive thinking, is about creating new ideas as you go along, adapting And he says all future thinking is based on memory unless you're using intuitive or generative or transformative thinking. And an example of this is is everyone, everyone, as we look back in history, everybody that we would consider to be a genius or an inventor used generative thinking, transformative thinking, because they thought of things 
that didn't exist, that no one else was thinking. It was new knowledge that I believe God gave them. But, I mean, Aristotle comes along and says, you know, the universe revolves around the earth because with the naked eye, that's what it appeared like to him. And then Copernicus comes along and says, no, the universe really revolves, it's heliocentric. It revolves around the sun. And then we're thinking, okay, we, we got it all. But then Thomas Kepler, I mean, Johannes Kepler comes along in the 1500s and, and, and introduces us to the laws of planetary motion, which just is mind-blowing. They're the same laws and theories that we work on right now, that NASA and everybody who works with space and exploration is guided by what Johannes Kepler discovered. And then Einstein comes along and gives us the laws of relativity, and about things in motion and, and at rest and on and on. And each one of these people discovered a new way of thinking rather than what previously existed. And I'm arguing that is exactly what repentance is. God, help me to think of things differently than I thought before. Not something different than your word, but through your word reveal to me how I need to see my sinful behavior so that I don't repeat it so that I go forward in a new path. And it dawned on me finally, that's exactly what David is praying in Psalm 51, verse 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That word renew literally means to repair, to make new again. And the word spirit in the Hebrew is the same word for mind. So he's saying, repair me from the inside. And, and help me to have a new mind again, to think of truth in a way forward that, that lines up with what you have for me, rather than the patterns that I've been living out. I love what the prophet Jeremiah reminds us of. As we think about our brokenness and our sinfulness, and how often we feel like we let the Lord down and even ourselves down, the prophet Jeremiah writes, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. The truth is that all of us are sinners, not some, but all. All of us fall short of the standard of God's glory. There is no answer to sin except for Jesus, who paid the price in full. And we can either receive that by grace and faith, or we can reject it. But that is how we have a relationship with God, through Jesus and through the finished work of the cross. And my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that we would go forward from today listening to God, asking Him to speak His truth into our life that we might understand more and more of who he is and what he wants for us. Let's pray.